this podcast, we've talked about the need to secure legacy systems from attackers that use today's technology. But what about securing today's systems in preparation for attackers using technologies in the future? In this episode, special guests Ellie Daw and Ben McCarty discuss one of those emerging technologies, quantum computers, and specifically their utility for securing and encrypting data. Ellie Daw is the product lead of anomaly detection and data science at Shift5. Her focus is in aligning analysis with scalability and impact for customer data sets. She comes from a background in applied cryptography, secured protocol design, and industry research for emerging technologies, such as quantum and private computation. Ben McCarty is an American author, veteran, inventor, and cybersecurity professional. He's a former cyber capability developer with the National Security Agency and served as a cyber warfare specialist in the U.S. Army. He has multiple security certifications, patents, and years of experience working in the security industry. Ben, Ellie, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Josh. Both veterans of the podcast. Um, I'm really glad to get you uh, on the same virtual room here to talk about an interesting topic in cryptography uh, and really in general, uh, quantum computing. Um, I thought maybe we would start out with building some base uh, layer uh, in both cryptography and in quantum computers. So let's start with cryptography. Um, ben, just in general, what is cryptography and, and why do people study and employ it? Basically, if I had to describe cryptography, it's the art of kind of writing in codes to hide the information from other parties. And the idea is there is some kind of protocol or structure to your encoding that the receiving party can decode it to receive the uh, original contents. And it has a pretty deep history. I mean, I know we recorded a podcast about uh, ninjas and uh, their surreptitious use of information um, to to, um, achieve their goals. Uh, what kinds of cryptographic techniques uh, have we seen, you know, in, in in history, for example, with ninjas or even I think like Julius Caesar used codes way back? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's familiar with the, the Caesar cipher, right, where you're just uh, kind of shifting the alphabet by a specific number and then you share that number. So like if I were to do a Caesar cipher plus one, A becomes B and just shifting every letter in my letter kind of it could be intercepted by. Uh, a courier or other enemies on the way, but they shouldn't be intelligible to them. But the receiver should know to just reverse by one, and then they'll get the intended message. The ninja did some interesting things where they, uh, I'll talk about two techniques just to, so we can get to the quantum stuff. But what, one of them was they made their own alphabet. So which is interesting, if you remember, uh, the Japanese kanji is made of this kind of... Um, kind of grid where you draw lines and pictograms, uh, they worked with their correspondent to leave out certain lines or grid lines from that. You know, if you think of like the numbers on a digital clock, like where it's all those like lines, horizontal, vertical, that can produce like one, zero, nine, eight. They kind of did that with the kanji. So they would leave out certain ones into a natural... Japanese reader, it would be incomprehensible. Like, this doesn't make any sense. But it was encoded in such a way that they knew certain grid lines were needed to be back added. And then then the kanji would suddenly be readable again. A third kind of 
cryptography method that they implemented was after writing the letter, they would tear it into three different pieces and send each piece by a different courier. And the idea is if any of them got intercepted, they only have partial information and attempts at editing or changing the information would be impossible or noticeable when reconstructing the letter from the three fragments. Another example that I think is really creative and kind of shows that it's not necessarily just codes. It can kind of like the world of crypto also has this idea of obfuscation. I think it was somewhere in Asia. I'll have to, maybe we can share on another podcast when I look up the actual details, but um, the couriers would, they would shave their head. They would tattoo the the message on their head and grow their hair back and then, you know, travel and, and deliver the message that way. So it's just kind of all the creative stories about crypto in history, I think are really fun. Yeah, I, uh, I I hate to think about what the perfect forward secrecy is, uh, the policy is for, you know, purging that information after yeah, that's it's the other end. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I think these are really interesting historical examples that make a lot of intuitive sense, right? It's uh, there's a secret language and both parties know what that language is and uh, it can't be intercepted unless the person in the middle knows what that crypto system is. But, you know, Ellie, the modern cryptography, there are a lot more primitives than just uh, that. I mean, we would call that now, uh, you know, private or symmetric key cryptography, right? But there are a lot of other ways uh, that cryptographers study uh, the ability to, you know, hide things and 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 um, ensure integrity and, and confidentiality and, uh, and 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 like. Yeah, I'll mention just a couple. One is hashing. So this is kind of in the family of one-way functions. This is where you might, you know, give a, a firmware image to a hashing function, and it will spit out a like a fingerprint. Um, and this is a way for us to validate integrity, right? So if something in that image has changed, then the next time you send it through the, sh- the same hashing function, the fingerprint will also change. So that's a really helpful tool. Another one is asymmetric cryptography. So in symmetric cryptography or secret key, like we were talking about, the way you encode and decode uses the same key. Right. So in the Caesar cipher, if you shift by one to encode, you would have to shift by one again to decode. It would be the other way, but it's kind of the same. Um, Asymmetric cryptography actually uses a different key to encrypt than it does to decrypt. So there are different mathematical kind of techniques that we use to get this done. But the point is that this it's it helps us to share these these private keys. You know, we can we can kind of do this encrypt decrypt without having to sort of know, like know a secret key ahead of time. We can use it to share a secret key and then use that for, for communications later on. And then you can combine these things so you can hash stuff and then sign them with keys to get to attestation, right? So you can, you can, you can combine these cryptographic primitives to achieve all kinds of really interesting um, uh, use cases. And I wanted to dig into that a little bit because I think some of the nuance of like what quantum uh, computers can do for and against cryptography, it's important to understand that there are different kinds of cryptographic primitives and that quantum computers are, are maybe good at attacking certain kinds and, and maybe not others, right? So um, 
I think uh, maybe that's a good segue uh, for uh, Ben. Tell us a little bit about what what a quantum computer is and, and how how they differ from you know what we would call classical computers or the things that we we have uh, we're, we're speaking into today. Yeah, yeah. So if I had to break it down simply, a quantum computer uses qubits rather than bits, and a qubit is a two level system, right? We have a ground state and then an energized state. Uh, just to go on a tangent, uh, there's a, going to be something called a quidrit that's going to come out where there's multiple energy layers. And that that's going to be <laughs> the next generation whenever they get to that. And that's going to, again, make things more complicated. But for now, the qubit is basically like off and on, just like our normal classical bit, off and on. The, the difference, again is imagining um, the superpositions, the entanglement, the interference, uh, the fact that we can do other quantum effects and phenomenon like tunneling. Uh, that's what makes this quantum computer much different than our classical computer. And um, the other main point is that it's kind of probabilistic in its functions. Not all of them, but most of them are probabilistic, meaning you would need to run the same algorithm multiple times and then calculate the distribution to kind of get your results. There's a lot of other distinctions, but I don't know how how deep we want to get into it. Yeah, I mean, I think like at a high level that that the the fundamental difference is exactly what you say, which is, you know, classical computers operate in like deterministic states, right? The the transistor is a switch. It's on, it's off. And those lend themselves to to bits. Uh, which I think I think actually a statistician named the bit uh, this guy John Tukey is a, for a binary digit, um, so it's a it's a zero or a one, right? And um, the key difference is that you know as we've learned more about the universe, we've realized how little we know because you know the quantum yeah. world is weird. I mean, it's just a really weird space, right? You've got electrons that like. They sort of exist at a position when you measure them, but then when you don't measure them, they're sort of in a probability distribution. It's just kind of, it, it boggles the imagination a little bit. And, um, but it turns out that because of this weirdness, we can design computers that are, instead of being based on a zero or one, they're based on these, these things that have a, like a probability of being in certain states, right? And uh, things get pretty complicated from there. But, you know, Ellie, maybe it would be helpful to talk about um, you know, computers are very good at doing a lot of different kinds of computation. Um, why do we need quantum computers, given that they seem so complicated and weird at the at the sort of uh, bit uh, qubit level? Like, why do we need this additional type of computer? What sorts of problems are they good at? Yeah, that's a good question, too. I think so at a really like zoomed out level, I think it's just fun to kind of think about problems in a different model, right? Like, we know exactly how this sort of deterministic model works. So looking at it from this sort of like energy state model is, is really fun. Um, but because we can leverage some of these other properties of, of like these ions or photons or whatever, uh, we can solve like optimization problems a little bit better. We can factor large numbers, right? Which is relevant to what we're talking about today because that's one of the mathematical techniques that underpins some asymmetric cryptography algorithms. So 
once we kind of get quantum computers to this state of like stability and kind of trustworthiness where, where we have enough qubits and enough like compute power to actually factor the numbers big enough to like ruin RSA, we're going to be in a tough spot. But yeah, so quantum computers are basically just good at like a different subset of problems. Um, it is good to remember too that they're not good at every subset of problems. There are still some, some things that classical computers do just as well. So that's, you know, they're not kind of the silver bullet to everything forever, but they're really interesting for some of these like optimization problems, um, things like that. I, I just want to say when, when you ask, why do we need quantum computers? I, you could say like, hey, we don't actually need them. But I did hear this interesting theory recently where they were saying like Ed Moore's law, right? The doubling of classical chips is maybe reaching an end soon. And that's a problem because our economy has been based on the assumption that every year or two, there's going to be new and better hardware and I can do more business. I could Consumers need to buy new computers. There's going to be all these new advances, which opens up more you know, capitalism and all this. And if that were to suddenly end, that could harm you know, economic globally you know, progress. And the, it, it's interesting to think about investments in quantum as... Uh, a reason why we need it, you know, from that perspective. Yeah, it almost strikes me as a bit of a basic science thing, right? Like it, it's such a novel and new fundamental component for us to build on top of that sometimes you just need to make investments in understanding things for the sake of, you know, science and just rely on the fact that in the future, you know, ingenuity will drive new uses for that that you maybe couldn't have anticipated, you know, a priori, right? That's that's one of the big struggles that like the quantum space is running into right now, too, is kind of exactly that. Like a lot of practitioners in a bunch of different industries know how to think about things in this like discrete like classical computing model. And so we're like not even really sure how to model some of our problems in a way that a quantum computer would be advantageous over these classical computers, which is kind of an interesting thing to run into because we know like we know a quantum computer might be really good at solving the traveling salesman problem, right? But what other problems can it solve? Like we can't, we can't base our entire economy off of this like computer right. that, that solves the traveling salesman problem. Like that's right. not, that's not it. Yeah. But you're going to get your Amazon packages even faster. So uh, that's yeah. true. <laughs> I mean, so Ellie, you, you pulled a really important thread, I think, which was, you know, we know for a fact, like there are established algorithms uh, that use quantum computers uh, that we know for a fact that certain problems are much, much, much easier on uh, on quantum computers. And you pulled this interesting thread on asymmetric cryptography, which was, you know, the hardness of um, of a certain kind of math problem is what creates the, the security properties of, of um, asymmetric cryptography, this idea that you can have a private key and a public key, uh, and that it's basically easy to compute you know, the encrypted, the ciphertext of something uh, given one component, but very hard to go the other way. Um, how do quantum computers change that, uh, change that picture, at least given the way that we currently do asymmetric cryptography? Yeah, so... Quantum computers, once we have enough qubits, like we, I don't know, we kind of glazed over this a little bit, but in the near term, we don't actually have enough stable qubits to like effectively factor RSA at the scale that we would need to. So just to kind of zoom out a little bit, um, 
I think it's estimated that it will t- it would take like 2,000 qubits to factor RSA that we use in the wild, which is like RSA 2048 maybe. Um, so we have fewer qubits maybe in the like 20 range that are available on quantum clouds for people to, to play around with. That's obviously nowhere near the power that we need to like factor these RSA keys. So the reason factoring RSA keys is bad, uh, as you had kind of alluded to, Josh, we we know that something is secure if we can like encrypt with this one key and decrypt with this other key, but we can't figure out these two keys from each other. The, the problem that that relies on in some of these asymmetric crypto algorithms is the fact that it's really hard on a classical computer to factor large numbers. So the fact that a quantum computer, one that's sufficiently powerful, of course, um, the fact that it can do this actually means that all of our asymmetric crypto is kind of uh, not useful in a quantum world, right? So places that this is deployed, we, we use asymmetric crypto to exchange keys um, over like any web form, any kind of internet HTTPS connection that allow us to encrypt the rest of our traffic. So encrypted internet traffic, inc- literally just like encrypted anything networking <laughs> relies on these uh, these asymmetric keys. Um, certificates rely on them. Like signing of emails, right? Those sorts of things. Yeah, PKI infrastructure for, for websites. So factoring this is really bad. There's a lot of things that are like deployed on the internet and in other settings today that we would need to replace with other cryptography that a quantum computer can't break. Um, the other thing that's like kind of a nuance, but a little bit like noteworthy is that because because encryption kind of stays, like you encrypt it and then you can just store it, um, we can, an adversary could potentially like collect this asymmetrically encrypted data today. And even if we don't have a quantum computer that can sort of crack the key. And then once we do, they could they could use it to crack the key and then decrypt everything. So it's a problem today, even though today maybe we don't have 2,000 stable qubits to actually do this factorization. The need for asymmetric crypto is not going away. I mean, it's just such an important primitive in so much of modern society, right? The problem is the way that we've implemented asymmetric crypto relies on the hardness of a problem that is maybe not that hard on a quantum computer. So, you know, one of the uh, kind of three things I wanted to talk to you about today when we talk about, you know, quantum crypto is uh, this idea of quantum resistant crypto. So the idea then, right, is that if you are able to replace that integer factorization, for example, uh, or elliptic curve, you know, uh, whatever you're using for your, for, your, for your asymmetric crypto with something that com- quantum computers find just as difficult or at least, you know, very, very, very hard to do, uh, you now have a crypto system that you can rely on, right? So what are some of like the research directions in that space and, and what are some of the promising candidates? There's, there's a couple of them, right? So when we looked at the, um, I'll call them post-quantum and quantum resistant, symmetric keys are resistant uh, and you could say hashes to an extent are, are resistant, uh, but then we get to post-quantum. So again, they, we still need to use public key, but we need a different kind of problem. The three main problems we're looking at is lattices, codes, and something called like super isogeny. Super right? singular isogenies, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, that's the word. The, the, one of the concerns, though, is these are kind of like a, a new math, right? In terms of we, we had decades of experience and understanding with prime factoring and all this, but now these lattices and these like GAPA codes and the, these other kind of crazy curves, uh, we believe a quantum computer shouldn't be able to uh, easily attack it. But I believe there may be new and more uh, quantum attack algorithms to be invented in the future. Right now we have Grovers and Shores, but that's not going to be the only two ever. I think there's going to be another smart guy somewhere or person who's going to uh, find something and it's, it's going to uh, threaten again possibly these new post-quantum crypto algorithms, which have, you know, taken a long time and they're still not certified by NIST, you know, and we're just going it, to, it's possible there may not be a, a silver bullet here to really rely on. Yeah. And I mean, the other thing is it's hard to prove a negative. Um, and, you know, to, we, we sort of, um, for what it's worth, you know, we didn't have a proof that integer factorization is actually hard, right? It's just that people have been trying for a really, really long time. And we just, you know, the, the algorithms for it are, are not fast enough to like keep up with the size of the keys, basically, right? Like there's there's all kinds of integer factorization algorithms out there and they get a little bit better around the edges, but the fundamental like way that they scale with respect to the key size is just like very bad for a classical computer. Um, but we don't have a proof. We don't have a proof that, that integer factorization is hard besides lots of really smart people have tried to do it. Right. And so, you know, what you're articulating Ben, I think is really smart is that to get a corollary level of comfort with some of these candidate algorithms we need decades of really, really smart PhD students and academics and cryptographers like banging against these algorithms, trying to, to, to make it fast to solve these problems. Basically, if we're going to try to uh, replicate what we've done in the past. Right. Um, so, you know, as far as like quantum resistant crypto for asymmetric keys, I mean, maybe we get there, maybe we don't. Um, it's, it's kind of a, a interesting time and place. Right. Um, but I think there are, it's not all doom and gloom because quantum computers um, can actually, or, or at least, you know, quantum systems can be used to actually strengthen cryptography in some cases, right, uh, Ellie? Yeah, I, one, of the, one of the areas I've been really interested in lately is multi-party quantum computation. So we don't have to like dig too, too much into it, but multi-party computation just allows like a bunch of people basically to compute something together securely, right? So privately without sharing things. Um, and you can do this in a quantum model as well. And it's kind of interesting thinking about like the, the advances that quantum is going to bring to cryptography. And so I think Ben's term was like quantum-based crypto, right? Like what kinds of things can we exploit from the quantum mechanics of this system to sort of invent new like encryption and decryption algorithms? So we didn't talk too much about it, but the way that a lot of these computers work is you have this sort of isolated qubit and then you apply gates to it. And the gate a lot of times is, is like a rotation of the qubit. So you, you put the qubit in superposition, which is this like probabilistic state where it kind of you know, is it one? Is it zero? We don't really know. Um, and then you just you just rotate it. That's that's kind of all that we do to these qubits. Uh, so you can actually exploit like using gates in a certain way to 
encrypt qubits, right? Like it's a different model of encryption than what we would think of in, in the classical model. But you can do a similar thing, just kind of manipulate these qubits in a certain way. You can do it with multiple qubits, so it's a big system. Like there are ways to sort of leverage the, the physical properties of quantum computers to have this new model of encryption, which is kind of cool. A lot of times though, it kind of, at least the ones I've seen, maybe maybe Ben has seen some other ones too, but we kind of need this like hybrid model because we still need a way to like share, um, yeah, share some of the information about like how we encrypt it or, you know, different keys, things like that. It's so cool. So it's like using this like totally bizarre property of like the universe at these tiny scales um, to just sort of rethink how we do cryptography given these different primitives, right? Rather than trying to cram this new technology into our old way of thinking, it's sort of reinventing, all right, well, what are the principles of crypto and like how do we incorporate this new invention into the way that we achieve those goals, which is super cool. And one one really interesting thread um, there I find is the key distribution problem. So, you know, when we think about, for example, um, you know, someone mentioned browser traffic, which is like encryption that all of us interact with on a daily basis, right? Um, you do banking transactions, you, um, you have secure phone calls and, and chat and, um, uh, and you do that because we trust the crypto systems that, that underpin the internet, you know, uh, transport layer security. There's a complicated dance that happens <laughs> to, to uh, establish a session key, a private key uh, for, for your browser session, right? Um, and it relies on different algorithms, Diffie-Hellman and these different kinds of things to share that key. Um, and it's kind of mind bending to think that you can, uh, even when someone's in the middle, um, you can figure out a way to establish a, a secret with somebody on the other end because math, right? <laughs> and, um, but there are different ways to do it. Uh, you know, and one of them is uh, to potentially use qubits or, or quantum properties to, to share a key, right? To do, to do um, a quantum distribution of a key. Then how does that work? Yeah, so there, there's a couple of ways to do it. I'll, I'll break it down starting with quantum key distribution, but then I'm going to talk about the quantum internet, which I'm super excited about, and which is, which is flying qubits, right? But look at quantum That's key distribution. That's one of my favorites too. Uh, so quantum, quantum key distribution, right? It, we wouldn't consider them like real qubits. We're taking quantum mechanical properties. So the BB-84, which was invented in 1984, basically uses polarized photons and the orthogonality of those photons basically works as a superposition. And that's one method of distributing the keys. The other one is Eckert 91, which uses entangled photons. So you would have a, a light source and you would have a crystal or beam splitter. And then it splits that light into two entangled copies, synth and fiber, you know, to Alice and Bob. And then that uses a slightly different method of Alice and Bob through, through the, the magic of entanglement, knowing what each other got uh, based on how they measure it. And, but essentially, it's kind of like randomization of they're measuring these photons. And photons seems to be the, the, the best modality for transporting stuff using quantum. Um, and then once they've done their measurements, they would then use the classical internet to kind of exchange like, hey, what'd you get, what I get? And then fr from that, they're able to derive a shared key 
which they can then talk to each other uh, securely with. And that, again, because it's a shared key, is symmetric-based, and then that, again, is quantum-resistant. And one of the problems of symmetric keys has always been, how, how do you protect this key? And that's what the asymmetric PKI solved. Uh, and then this quantum key distribution solves the symmetric problem by, you know, basically hiding it. And it's like a, a protocol that generates it. Um, and now if I go to the quantum internet, the, the, this is where uh, the, the method I've seen most interesting or most promising, I should say, is uh, we still need like routers like we have in a normal internet. So imagine every 60 to 100 kilometers, uh, we need to re-energize those photons. But there's a problem. In quantum mechanics, you can't clone you know, quantum, quantum stuff. There's no cloning theorem. So what they're having to do is this photon will hit this diamond. And inside this diamond, they've specially crafted in a lab to have vacancies. It's called a, a nitrogen vacancy center. So this photon will hit this diamond. Inside this diamond is this kind of grid of nitrogen atoms. So the nitrogen atom absorbs the photon, becomes entangled with it, and then uh, they would shoot another photon into that nitrogen atom and then create an entangled copy off of it. So if you look at like a normal trace route on the internet, you can get to most places in less than 10 hops. So imagine 10 different diamond centers, each about 100 kilometers apart, and each diamond would have to have maintain an entangled copy of your qubit until you know Bob at the very end gets the his copy, and then he can use the classical internet to inform Alice and every single uh, diamond vacancy center in between. Hey, I've I've successfully received my copy of the qubit. You can clear that nitrogen atom so someone else now can use it. It it's pretty wild, but there's you know again possibility uh, for maybe an adversary to be operating one of those diamonds or, you know, do something or inject something. So now we need quantum based encryption protocols. And that's again, uh, super interesting. And there, there's a, there's a couple of things um, I'm hoping to talk about later when the patent office, you know, lets me. <laughs> there are a couple threads I wanted to pull out too, that Ben had noted. So the first one in quantum key distribution, QKD, one of the big benefits of this is because we use like optical fibers and in, in a lot of the QKD techniques, you actually know if someone's eavesdropping. So unlike, you know, unlike normal internet where we can be secure against eavesdroppers, but we can't actually know if someone's watching, we can know if someone's watching in QKD, which is really cool. Um, the other thread I wanted to pull out, Ben had mentioned a couple of times about entanglement, which there's lots of like complexities that go into this, but this just refers to kind of two qubits that are dependent upon each other. So they're sort of like, I don't know, connected, their energy states are connected in such a way that if one moves, the other will also move. So this actually allows a level of communication without having to communicate things. So it's it's kind of a really interesting property that we get from quantum and one of the other like really big benefits and something that we're trying to kind of leverage the best that we can, all of the researchers in the industry. So. And how does um, quantum computing affect identity and authentication? I mean, I know this is a huge topic, but you know, while we're while we're sort of doing a once-over, I, I know it has pretty profound impacts here, right? There's a couple. One, I would say, quantum computers are really good at generating randomness. 
as a randomness source, which is always important for generating, you know, unique signatures and keys. But uh, there's this really interesting company. It's a startup out of UK, and they're taking advantage of quantum tunneling to create unique identities. Okay, so um, there's this technique called lithography, right, where we use light to etch onto a surface and that's how like normal transistors are created with silicon that same process they took and they're they're applying it to silicon again they're etching a matrix onto a very thin wafer of silicon and they're etching varying uh depths like and these, these are like atom levels this is three atoms deep this is only one atom deep right so you have this wafer of varying atom depth and then on the other side of it they'll shoot these electrons and then these electrons should normally uh, hit this barrier and either bounce off or be absorbed. But because they've reduced the thickness of the barrier to less than uh, the wavelength of this electron, now there's a possibility for it to tunnel onto the other side. So when we say tunnel, it doesn't actually like dig through the silicon. It just appears on the other side. It's like quantum magic, right? Uh, so they combine this with the fact that this lithography technique that they've developed is so uh, special that they can't replicate that chip even if they wanted to. They can't create a copy. So now they have this mechanism of creating all these like, unique little quantum chips that only you have. So And it's like this method of where I send electrons of different energy through this matrix and it's kind of like a way to generate an identity and prove that, hey, only I could do this if, if it was me. And I, I, that's like super exciting. Uh, you have uh, to be really careful with that YubiKey. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's no losing that one. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's really low energy too, right? We're, we're, the amount, we're just talking about not voltage, but just like electrons. So um, certain low power devices like Internet of Things that, that – traditionally kind of suck at cryptography because they don't have like the, the hardware capacity to really generate strong keys. Suddenly it's, it's, it's a possible there. That is so cool. Um, and then let's talk a little bit about kind of uh, transportation and over the air updates. Ellie, I know you, you had some thoughts about how quantum cryptography could uh, have effects there. Yeah, it actually was perfect timing. I saw um, an article today talking about how quantum could affect the transportation industry, um, specifically like automotive, because there's a lot going on in sort of the smart car space. But a couple of kind of big, big ticket items there is a lot of these companies are pushing over the air updates, which of course are usually pushed with like network protocols that we know and trust, which use classical crypto. <laughs> so in order to keep these safe and kind of make sure that the integrity of the firmware images that are getting pushed, um, I don't know, the, the signing, making sure that they're coming from the right place, all of those details that will need to be quantum safe. Like we want this to be happening with, um, with quantum resistant or quantum based, like any of the above crypto that will be safe in that sort of like emerging technology world. Um, the other sort of prong of this, which is kind of interesting, is the actual sort of network communication that goes on on these data buses on vehicles. So a lot of older transportation systems, we've talked about it on this podcast before, but um, use kind of older protocols that don't have crypto built in. So that's already vulnerable, like not even in a 
quantum world, right? But as newer platforms are coming out and we're moving to like smart cars and smart everything, they are starting to encrypt things. But again, we're kind of deploying these crypto algorithms that we know and trust um, that are not necessarily quantum safe. So there's implications literally everywhere. We want to make sure that we're sort of thinking about the the data that's being sent across actual buses on these vehicles so that brakes and, you know, stereo and all these things are not affected, but then also just making sure that the firmware updates are, are nice and safe and like pass the integrity check too. Yeah. And I, and I swear we're not trying to like push shift five related uh, stuff here. I know we were talking about the <laughs> traveling salesman problem and routing uh, Amazon shipments and there's quantum quantum is going to affect everything, I think. And um, Ben, I guess, Kind of summing all of this up, you know, there's a lot of really, um, I mean, frankly, stunning uh, results from our experience with uh, with learning about crypto systems and what the ramifications are for things that are really important to us. But it still feels in a lot of ways kind of out there in some sense, you know, it's like, well, these things are coming, we can only get 20 qubits at a time, or we're able to replicate these in like lab environment, but they're really touchy and finicky and like we can't really get the engineering right. So it still feels very kind of theoretical and like, you know, they're, they're academics who are saying, hey, we really need to be thinking about these things. But to everyday people, you know, quantum computers, it doesn't seem at least, ha- you know, hasn't really had a big impact. When do you think like, and I know predicting the future is impossible, but uh, when do you think the first impact, like material impact to our lives will will happen as a result of all of this quantum work? I'm thinking like the year 2024, 2025 will be kind of like the year of quantum, uh, where we'll start to see like a significant impact. The NIST standards will be ratified. It'll also be like the 100 year anniversary of when like um, you know, like Neil Bohr and Einstein and all those people were you know, kind of formalizing quantum mechanics. And uh, we're starting to see a lot of companies starting to go into mass production now. So this early phase was them trying different chip architectures. And, hey, I built a 20, I built a 30, I built a 5. They found the design they like. And now they're going into, like, 3D layer construction. So I take a design I like and I just print a thousand copies and now I have high high accuracy and high reliability and I can join them all together and I've seen some clever ways where they fixed the um, the energy and control line problem by kind of putting holes in the middle so they can tunnel through so now you're thinking of like a 3d level chip instead of a 2d because right now if you think geometrically like a 2d circuit uh, the, I want all the dots to connect to each other, but really you can only do like a triangle with all the dots connected. If I do a square, suddenly it, when I try to crisscross the corners, you can't have those lines overlap. So like this two, 3D architecture of coming in and, 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 and branching out, it'll retroactively impact things happening today. So there's so many things that have crypto embedded in them that have like a long life. Uh, look at cars. They tend to be on the road for 20 years. Planes, I think, 40 or more. Um, the crypto put in them today may not will be safe, but maybe 20 years from now, maybe quantum computing will be very accessible and cheap. 
but those devices will still be on the road or still be in production. And, and it, it, because it's hardware embedded, it won't be really easy or possible to, to or, you know, cost effective to replace. So people need to start adopting that kind of post quantum crypto today. So that way in the future, you know, you, you, you won't have to throw away all these devices or worry about you know, <laughs> just anyone uh, being able to break it. I think one of the other things too is like we talked about kind of scaling to to a high number of qubits that can affect these like big scary problems. Um, but I think in the next few years we'll see companies kind of figuring out how to build creative applications or or products or solutions with a small number of qubits, things that that can't be easily built on classical computers. So I think that's like an interesting area of innovation as well, even kind of while we're waiting for more qubits to become stable. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, uh, you know, I know for the software engineers that are listening, you can actually play with quantum computers today. I know there are, you know, quantum computing resources available, but also just getting a sense of what it means to program a quantum computer. I know like there's Q sharp is one language that, um, uh, that, that, that's out there. There, there are probably a dozen other frameworks, but you know, you can sort of emulate a quantum computer on a classical computer, and get your feet wet with what, what it would mean to like interact with one, even if you're not going to get like the computational power that you that you would on a on a native, uh, you know, quantum computer. So, um, you know, I, I think that's like a fun a fun thing that people can do. You know, that's that's practical today that you know could potentially have uh, impacts down the road. So. Well, I know um, we covered a whole lot of material at a pretty high level. I think it was it was really interesting to me, and I know um, you two have done a lot of really interesting work in quantum, and would love to have you on the show again to dig into uh, more detail on on some of the many uh, diverse topics that we covered. But um, Ben, Ellie, thank you so much for coming on. I hope to have you on again real soon. Thanks so uh, much, yeah, Josh. Thank you. thank you for listening to this episode of Planes, Trains, and Tanks. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review. To learn more about Shift5 and our products, visit our website at shift5.io or follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter.